0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
1: The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is.
0: Learn more at meta.com/slash metaverse impact.
2: For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com/slash partners in crime media.
3: I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original True Crime Review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, a high-profile crime hoax shook the city. Decades later, local reporters examined the lasting damage of the Charles Stewart case. We'll discuss the Boston Globe's companion podcast to the documentary series Murder in Boston. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of These Are Their Stories podcast, My Husband and Love of My Life.
1: Lumberjack Kevin Flynn
4: so you saying that because I'm wearing a, like one of these checkered flannels? Yes,
1: another plaid shirt. This is two weeks in a row. Buffalo plaid. Oh, I've got
4: I've got a whole bunch. yes yeah. I, look, we talked about this on Married with Podcast. Yes. Not to derail the whole discussion, yeah. But talked about how like I'm getting like a whole new wardrobe, and Rebecca like always wants to buy like expensive things for me, which is great. But I'm also like, hey, I'm just hanging out at home. I like some comfortable stuff. I went to this place that everybody knows. We'll call it like it's new- all- navy new army okay <laughs> and like their everyday shirts are fantastic and i said oh look, feel the flannel ones they're really yeah. comfy and then first time through the wash here are my arms it's here are my that's arms. exactly
1: what happens to
4: my flannel Son shirts bitch.
3: and i'm like "Hmm, now you know why i buy you flannel shirts that don't cost 9.99
4: yeah <laughs> maybe i just go one size up and-
3: no because then they'll be too big in the shoulders
5: yeah Stuff I get ends up being like midriff shirts.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
5: <laughs> like a boy Madonna. That's
3: right. That's yeah. right. Even if you just upgrade a little bit to L.L. Bean, that shit won't happen. Kevin. Yeah. I'm just
5: okay. saying. L.L. Bean is good. Okay. <laughs> They've got good quality. Yeah. And you can shirts. just get them at
3: the outlet. They don't have to be a million dollars and you can still be cheap.
5: All right. Let's go to the outlet there. <laughs> yeah. You guys are right
4: by the outlet. Too. We are. One or two of them. Yeah.
3: That's right. That's right. You
4: know, and, the, and the real store. L.L. Bean's not far Uh, from us all in in Maine. That's true. And if you've never been there, you pull into the parking lot and there's a giant boot. Yeah. One of those mud duck (laughs) boots that they...
3: Yeah, it's real big.
4: It's big. It's big. It's it's Mother Goose big.
3: And it's it's really really big. Yeah.
4: That's classy.
3: Also right. with us is private investigator, Moving certified on. pet detective, <laughs> resident cat
1: lady, and author of the Final Curtain, Laura Bricker. Hi, Laura. Hey, Rebecca. Yeah, I, um, Kevin. I want to support you because I have also recently upgraded my flannel shirt scene. Yeah. And sometimes I'm out and about. I would like to recommend the Blake Shelton line of flannel shirts that you can get at Leon's End. The okay. Blake Shelton line. The okay. The kind of country. But they're also cozy. Mm. Well I will
4: I just uh, like Blake Shelton. Yeah. Just like Blake Shelton. <laughs> <laughs> will I be able to sleep with Gwen Stefani if I uh, get those shirts?
1: Well, maybe. No, I sleep with my cats, I mean. <laughs>
4: <laughs> my wife does say this shit is bananas quite a bit. Oh, so
1: it's true.
3: That's true. Um and finally, happiest uh, of all things, cynical, the author of the City trilogy of novels, host of Stranger Arrivals, and our Patreon deep dive book club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hi, Toby.
5: Hi, Rebecca. No wardrobe comments from me
4: tonight. <laughs> all right. So, Kevin, I'm just picturing Adrian Walker, like trying to listen. Is like, what the fuck are these? What is this? <laughs> this is New
1: Hampshire, Adrian Walker. Goddammit. We're just all
4: about
3: our <laughs> Meanwhile, flannel. <laughs> Meanwhile, whoever spent <laughs> seven years of my life, some employee executive of Old Navy who's a fan of ours is like, pull the ads god damn it pull the dynamic insertion ads for I old S- navy
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: listen i have banana, banana republic Re- still so cool, i yeah. have a banana republic credit card it's like the only They're store the, yeah it's the only store if you don't know brand banana republic I have. gap yeah it's the only store brand card yeah. i have and you know you know why because like you know all the boys always like bought their stuff at banana republic you, i buy you stuff there and because their card is good at the gap whatever whatever and if you have one of their credit cards, you get so much free shit. It's like they pay you to buy their clothes. It's ridiculous. That's like the Macy's card. Yeah. It's it's beyond ridiculous. I'm a fan of the brand, generally speaking. I
5: I'm just, wearing an Old Navy shirt that I got when I lived in D.C., which means hmm. before 97. Yeah. Wow. It was probably... And okay. It's, wow. Yeah, it's hanging in there.
3: I'm just <laughs> saying, the flannel shirts are infamous for shrinkage they just are it's just a thing you gotta
1: know yeah I have two that really shrank and I was so sad because one of them was my hot pink flannel shirt and I really loved
4: it <laughs> Adrian Walker's like you Mike Barnacle loving motherfuckers we yes. just yeah. talk about my podcast <laughs>
5: so let's do what we do <laughs> Old Navy but wait thumbs
4: up or thumbs down can I tell everybody what we're doing on Thursday's show yes we're gonna be talking about the podcast Burden of Guilt alright and that's all I have to say about that the best part I'm
3: Adrian Walker when his fellow journalist was like, you're a fucking podcaster now? <laughs>
5: <laughs> <laughs> on hard times.
3: That yeah. was the best. All right. Well, I guess it's time to talk about Adrian and his little show. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. Let's go ahead and drop that first clip right now. Leading off.
2: Did you know whether they were alive? Uh, the The woman seemed like she wasn't or barely. She was in grave condition. I think that was evident
4: the The man in the driver's seat was squirming around, um, making faces like he was injured, but he was evidently alive.
3: It was a crime story that shook Boston. The survivor of a fatal carjacking said his pregnant wife was murdered by an unknown black man, triggering an unprecedented police crackdown in black neighborhoods, still dealing with the racial legacy of busing.
5: The memory of being victimized at night or the months. It wasn't just a day, Adrian. October 23rd. It was months this went on.
3: The city's spotty track record on civil rights fueled police, politicians, and the media too eager to believe a fiction wrapped in racism. But even after it was revealed to be a hoax and that Charles Stewart staged the death of his wife, the damage to the community could not be undone.
2: When Chuck jumped and the truth was revealed, some people had to confront the fact that they were exactly who Chuck thought they were. Charles Stewart Played a racist game on us. We cannot forget, however, that he played out
4: that game on a stage which was already set.
3: The Murder in Boston podcast by the Boston Globe is a companion to, but separately produced from, the HBO series of the same name. Hosted by editor Adrian Walker, the podcast digs into the Charles Stewart case from the local point of view, going deeper into its many threads. It takes a critical look at the city's racial backstory, flaws in the investigation, and the indiscriminate targeting of black men, as well as failures of its own newspaper. It even uncovers new information into who knew ahead of time that Stewart was the culprit. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from the Murder in Boston podcast, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs-up or thumbs-down reviews. So, Toby... You, most of all, and me, but you, most of all, had some complaints about kind of the lack of nuance and depth of the HBO documentary, Murder in Boston. Do you think overall that this podcast did a better job with this
5: story? Yes. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's, uh... Let's do what we do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I thought you know, when I thought back to what I'd said about the uh, HBO documentary, I I think this does all that stuff better, more thoroughly. You know, I think I said there's sort of a Cliff Notes version of Boston history presented in the HBO documentary. I think this is a lot more rounded, more insightful, more detailed. And so that part was good. This also, like, I was a little bit surprised in that this kind of I don't know if it's exactly breaking news, but I guess it is, but also brings up some things that seem really important that didn't get covered at all in the HBO documentary. And so I am kind of interested in how the decision was made that the podcast could have this, but the HBO documentary chose not to do it because for people who are super familiar with this case, there's actually some stuff towards the end of the podcast. I think that if it's not surprising it's at least new in that it's confirmed. So, yeah, I thought this was just a ton better. Well, my
4: uh, guess, Toby, is the reason why the documentary didn't have it is because it's produced in parallel, but not together. It's yeah. not a it's not a collaboration like that. Like the line. So I think it's just that their reporters had the story. And, you know, I think that even if this is a podcast and like this project like this, I, newspaper editors and reporters are still somewhat competitive about keeping their exclusives type. But you're right, it's a big development when they're talking about whatever it was, 33 people knew that Charles Stewart had been the killer before he jumped off the bridge. But this is really interesting because this is the first time we're comparing two pieces of content from mostly the same sourcing back to back. So he keeps it fresh and interesting to hear how like both the documentarians and the podcasters at the globe used like sound bites in different ways because they were pulling the same audio. I noticed this because this was a clip I pulled the previous week. But what they did with a certain sound bite from the mayor's assistant about how he found out that Stewart had jumped, but this is how he said it, and this is how it came out in the podcast.
2: And there's Ray standing up behind his desk with his hands propped up, leaning forward. And he looked up and he said, Neil, Stewart did it.
5: And he just jumped off the Tobin Bridge.
4: But when they used it in the documentary, like when we saw this the week before, they added pauses in between that with some B-roll to really ramp up the drama. And so it sounds like this.
2: Mayor Flynn, in a way that was completely unlike him, was sort of leaning over the desk and hunched over and looked up. And he said, Neil, he did it. He said Charles
5: Stewart killed his wife. And he just jumped off the Tobin Bridge and killed himself.
4: And they also, you remember, guys, that they called out... The practices of the documentarians, yes. you know, the the standard practices about licensing. We're not going to pay for your interview, but we will license your family photos so you get some money.
3: Yeah, which is standard practice for documentaries and TV shows, as we know, Kevin. I yeah. mean, that happens. I mean, full transparency, that's happened to us where, you know, licensing photographs and stuff for investigation discovery Yeah for some of the
4: things that we had ourselves. That being
3: said not a lot of money. No that being but but you know what? HBO does have a lot of money. Yeah. We've never been an HBO but we happen to know that they have a lot of money. But Laura I thought that was interesting too because it struck me and I know this happened with Dan Tabersky and the line when he was creating his podcast for Apple that there was also a documentary being made and they were separate projects that shared reporting resources so it was like he'd be doing an interview or someone would be doing an interview they they, both teams would be there and then they could use the material separately and however they wanted and I suspect that the globe team was like no we're not interested in helping you with your documentary we do things our way you do things your way because Mm -hmm. that call out I think was very telling and this I also think was a lot better what about you
1: Oh, a lot better. And, you know, speaking of we do things differently, I think one of the most interesting we do things differently transparency moment is we find out that HBO paid Joey Bennett for participation. And uh, Adrian Walker's like, yeah, um, that's not how we journalistically do things. Right. But they use the tape. Mm-hmm. which I would have, I would have used the tape too. I would have used the tape and said, how Oh we yeah, got it. no. I mean, they, yeah. they made that like very clear, but I think same material, different things. Like I often think about like when I was like a reporter and I was covering things and we'd all be at a press conference. Right. And you all get like the same soundbite. Like when I was super competitive in that era, I was like, how am I going to take this same information that everybody else got and make it sound better? And I think, the Boston Globe made it sound better right? in the way that they told this story in a much more insightful, nuanced, reflective way that also brought a lot more color to a lot of the people involved that we learned more about in this podcast than we did in the more sort of superficial view in the documentary.
3: They basically answered all of my questions and concerns that I had about the documentary, and they added so much more. One of the most interesting parts to me, there were so many interesting parts, but one of my many most interesting parts was the dispatcher, the one who took the Mm -hmm. 911 call. Who is it is it Grubalski? Is that that guy? Oh, that fucker. So he's he's the guy (laughs) that we heard had gotten the tip that Charles Stewart did it, but did nothing with that tip. Now we find out in the modern day, he is one of these who is threatening journalists, leaving them harassing messages, telling them that they should die, telling them that they are, you know, wasting resources. They should instead be reporting on these bananas, QAnon bullshit things.
2: Now Boston wants to make Willie Bennett the hero, who is another piece of trash that's been terrorizing people and polluting people with drugs his whole life. Grabowski had thoughts on a lot of other matters, too. You look at the Mueller investigation, Hillary's email, Loretta Lynch on the Tom who would impeachment, Hunter Biden's laptop, money to favored group.
3: Kevin, what did you think about the revelations about Grabowski? <laughs> you so, in particular, okay. I have questions for because.
4: Because if we're going to talk about transparency, <laughs> I will say that when we recorded last week, the uh, the HBO murder in Boston thing, I had a comment and I said, I think I even directed it to Lara. Get ready, Lara. I said, hey, if there was one hero in it for me, it was that 911 dispatcher. Man, he did a great job. And I actually had a note later saying, I don't know if he's on desk duty because he um, faked his overtime, but I liked him. And I had no idea. And then I hear this, and I said, Rebecca?
3: I, Remember that thing? I said, can we do
4: the thing we don't often do, but can we take that comment I, right I the was fuck like, out? like, Kevin,
3: you're so fucking lucky I listened to this whole podcast before I mixed that episode.
4: Because
3: you do not want a reference. Do you think this is your favorite person in the world? Yeah,
4: <laughs> But it doesn't just belie the fact that this guy went down the QAnon rabbit hole, but it's that there are a lot of cops and we already know what done. And I think we're hearing some of it like with prosecutors about how this is how wrongful convictions happen, because despite the plain facts that they are still like thinking how Willie Bennett must have also been in the car then. Right. Because how could we possibly have been wrong? You know? Oh, yeah.
1: Well, there was that one cop who was still saying that, that he still thinks that Willie Bennett was involved. And you're like, seriously,
5: dude? So wasn't that one of the new things, though? It's a whole like the evidence for a third person. Yeah.
3: So there may have been a, a accomplice in the car. There's evidence that potentially points to that, which, by the way, explains somewhat Bill Dunn saying the thing that we called him out for saying last week. We'll never know who killed Carol Stewart. They led, I had a tiny bit more
4: context with that soundbite. in the podcast. Yeah.
3: That being said, they never provided that in the documentary. And Toby, that's another example of something that was here that wasn't in the documentary. But another thing that was here that wasn't in the documentary was something that we also talked about last week, which was backstory into Carol Stewart and the murder itself. Mm-hmm. How do you think that that was treated here? Because I think that, again, that was something that you and I both expressed like some... Is content with in the HBO version of the story.
5: Right. Yeah. No, I think it was good because I, you know, you didn't really get much of a sense of who they were. I sort of had an idea that they were kind of upper middle class suburban Bostonites. But in fact, you know, she grew up in Revere and, you know, she worked at a restaurant where her dad worked as a bartender. And then you also get some insight into him as sort of this guy who just kind of lies about stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he said he was going to play football at Brown, but then got hurt. So he didn't, which is a lie. And
3: he's a real father type, huh?
5: Yeah.
2: He's pursuing
5: <laughs> some other woman. Oh, on, in the elevator. <laughs> on, well, there's an elevator one who he pursues until he finds out that she's married to a black guy, in which case his racism kicks in. And then there's another blonde woman who he goes out with on Friday nights uh, that they talk about. So Mm. basically he comes off as being sort of a sociopath and you get a little bit more of a background into you know, their upbringings and where they're from and stuff like that. So that was helpful and gave you a little more sense of their marital dynamic, which makes the idea that he would think of killing her as being preferable to a divorce or something, uh, that that just kind of makes a little more sense given all this information.
3: Yeah. It didn't seem like being a great husband was his first priority. No, it wasn't. No. no,
1: getting his hair done was his first priority. Yes,
3: big grifter type, big, big grifter <laughs> type. But he had some
1: grays, Laura. Don't, I know. Don't I
4: discount know. the grays. Yeah,
3: yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I want to talk about that we also heard was that there was this Boston Globe columnist uh, who decided to write a counter story to the Stewart story about James Moody, who was a black man who was killed the same night as Charles Stewart and, and Carol Stewart were shot. Then she, she gets completely blasted by the public and people in her own neighborhood newsroom for having written that story. Laura, what did you think about her story and the fact that like reporters in her own newsroom? I mean, to me, that's the kind of story that like in my newsroom that would if like, it it's counter to everything, if people would be like psyched that we had published, yeah. you know, especially if other outlets hated it. Yeah, like, that's the kind of thing that usually a newsroom gets sort of like amped about. That really surprised me.
1: Yeah, it it surprised me as well. And I think, again, it was just a window into this this time in Boston. But the scene where she's talking about her editors taking all the phone calls, she's getting blasted by everybody, and then they go out to lunch to sort of escape all of this. I mean, it sounded awful. And it sounded awful in a way that, like, you know, you're a reporter or a columnist, and you have what you think, hey, this is a good story. Like you said, this is a different perspective. This is something we should be reporting on. And then to get absolutely the opposite reaction when that sort of story comes out, those are the ones for me when I was a reporter that always sort of hit me in the gut because I'd have what I thought was like, oh, this is a great story. It, it sort of became like clockwork. Those were the ones that always stirred somebody up in a way that you weren't expecting. But I think, you know, we hear later on also, again, from that same reporter from the Boston Herald who also was sort of like, hey, I think something else is going on here and maybe we should like look at Charles Stewart. And I liked that, that we heard more from the reporters on the ground at that time that they all like more than one of them questioned what was happening. And they were talking about how they drove. They did like route drives, like, you know, like the crab crib or whatever, and felt like there were problems with the story. But I think what, you know, is frustrating is that then there is so much pushback to any other narrative because of the race card that has been thrown out there in this, in terms of it was a black man. Mm-hmm. And so like, that's mm-hmm. all anybody wants to hear, you know,
4: Laura, do you know how many people subscribed to the Boston globe after that article came out? How many? Well, not as many that subscribed to our Patreon <laughs> in the last oh, year. Oh,
3: really? Yeah. Yes. What a great transition to our business section.
4: Yeah. That's what we're talking about. If you join us at patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. Yes, you can get all sorts of exclusive content. More than four hundred and fifty exclusive episodes. There, they include the Crime Writers on After Show. Yes, where we continue our conversations about what we've been talking about. Yes,
3: I can tell you about a, a story that I don't believe the official narrative of. That everyone in my newsroom thinks I'm nuts for not believing.
4: Okay, well then, whatever that is, that's what we're talking about, Rebecca. Yeah. yeah. We also have other great podcasts like Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club. If you want to get prepared for toby's uh next recording the book is called what toby the angel makers
5: the angel makers by elizabeth mccracken Mm. i haven't started yet but apparently it's about arsenic a midwife and modern history's most astonishing murder ring which i think took place in hungary you know a while ago
4: We also have a podcast called Married With Podcast, in which Rebecca and I dispense advice. One listener wanted to know what to do when she was throwing a very fancy dinner party, and a guest decided to bring her adult daughter, uninvited. Mm. And this was the adult daughter. was not someone she particularly cared for. Uh, Also, Laura Brickers, leave it to Bricker Podcast. Laura, there's a new episode out. And you are always trying to solve mysteries in your quaint AF town of Exeter, New Hampshire. By the way, that's about 45 minutes north of uh, the Boston Globe. <laughs> On where, where, it is. What were they have, Constitution Ave, Moody Street, Waltham. I forget where they are, they're all set up there. But, uh, but this
1: is the mystery that is like the one that takes the cake for me. Which is the mystery. It takes the cake for a lot of people. I have to say, when I was out uh, researching this episode about the... Um, we're calling it Lunchables and Trees. I know Rebecca wanted to call it the Charcuta Tree, but it's more like hanging Lunchables. The Charcuta um, in- Tree,
3: though. I'm sorry. Trademark Rebecca Lavoie. I don't care if it's a shitty Charcuta Tree. It's still a Charcuta Tree.
1: It's, it is. And so it's so funny. So I went out um, to do some investigating. And while I was there, this park is next to the senior housing downtown. And there was this little lady sitting on the bench. And I was like, oh, and she's like, oh, what are you doing? I said, have you seen that stuff in the tree? And then she like gets up and kind of teeters over and she's like, oh, I got to go back and tell the others about this. If you want to see something, go down to the park. So it is all the news in Exeter. Many people are now assisting my investigation and you will learn all about it in that most recent episode.
4: And I know Adrian Walker just hit pause on his iPhone. (laughs) Yes. He's like, he picked up the phone. He's like, (laughs) who do we have that can get up to Exeter, New Hampshire right now? There's a whole
3: Globe New Hampshire team now. There is. Yes. I'm going to be talking about them in the after show.
4: Oh, okay. Well, are you their assignment <laughs> editor now? Because, no, because right. they... Did Whoever that assignment th- editor is ought to be fired. They're related to the story I'm Miska- talking about in the after show. <laughs> okay, yeah. fine. So also sorts of great stuff there on Patreon. And remember, you can uh, try these uh, for free for seven days. Listen to the podcast. And also, even if you don't, you can listen to the first five minutes. So we give five-minute free previews. Five mi- The first five minutes of all the episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash partnersincrimemedia.
3: Wow, Kevin, does that end the business section?
4: Thus ends the business section.
3: Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at crimewriterson.com. It's awesome.
4: That ended the business section.
3: I'm gonna go ahead and fade that that music. I'm gonna go ahead and fade that music out right now.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.
3: Speaking of journalism, uh, Mike Barnacle. <gasps> somebody we talked about last week when we talked about the documentary. We go a little farther, I think, in this podcast about Mike Barnacle's. Wrongdoing at the paper, aside from his coverage of this case, we learn a little bit more about his later career at the paper. But we also find out the Boston Globe never printed a retraction of his incorrect assertions that Charles Stewart murdered his wife because of an insurance scam. Um, or even and, a correction. Or even a yeah. correction. And um, we learned that journalists today have very strong opinions about Mike Barnacle's ability to get away with stuff at the Boston Globe. Can you just tell me what you think about how this podcast, the Boston Globe handled the Mike Barnacle part of the story? You know, he is a legacy figure at the Boston Globe itself.
5: Yeah, it's it's a tough one. I mean, Barnacle, I, I can't believe that guy's still on TV. He seems so awful. The way I kind of saw this, right, is they talk about, they give the history and then they're like, busing, busing was the beginning of the modern Boston history right that's what that's what changed everything but there was all this like tension that gets released in 89 with this quote-unquote murder well it's a murder but quote-unquote by a anonymous skinny black guy in a tracksuit and that kind of allows white Boston to sort of vent and try and reestablish sort of white supremacy in Boston and Barnacle seems like he's part of that effort right yep. it also goes to you know these strip searches of just random black youth who they make pull their pants down in public for their searches it, you know they just go through a litany of things that are like this which essentially re-establish a hierarchy there so yeah i mean i i you know kudos because you could have just ignored the barnacle aspect of things and gone on because you know he's he's a columnist and though he was influential and is still around you could just kind of say, well, that wasn't like that big a deal.
3: He was a columnist, but he was allowed to produce journalism during the story. Right. And it
5: was on the front page, right. right? It wasn't just like put in the editorial section. It was With his
3: so-called sources. Like he was right. allowed to produce journalism.
5: So, yeah, I just, I mean, I kind of saw they were willing to kind of confront the fact that they were platforming this guy who was basically trying to preserve the white power. Uh, and I don't mean like white power, like the clan, but like, white political and social power in Boston in just a very, very concrete way, more as an advocate than as a journalist, and they're still willing to put it on the front page. So I think it points to like mistakes that they made, but they're willing to, to kind of air it out there to kind of complete the picture, I guess.
2: Barnacle wrote that 14-year-old Willie had an extremely low IQ, and Willie got Ds in science and geography. The column read... The man's pathetic, violent history is so much a part of the unyielding issues of race, crime, and drugs tearing daily at America that it is amazing how any black minister or black politician could ever stand up and howl in public that his arrest was a product of police bigotry and a volley of discrimination aimed at all black residents of Boston.
3: What I thought was interesting, and Adrian points this out, is that the editor at the time, who was black, to this day, is defending the paper's coverage of that story, which blew my mind because that says something about, I think, the legacy and it says something about the state of journalism today and like the tensions in journalism today. You know, there are young people in journalism, people of color in journalism, LGBTQ plus people in journalism who've been saying for years and years and years and years that the construct and how journalism was built is inherently biased in its seeking of, quote, like, lack of bias, right? And I think that, like, his unapologetic defense of the coverage of this, it's like, you are completely not self-reflective about all of the failings of this. And putting Mike Barnacle's so-called journalism on the front page of your paper was a huge failing. And I thought it was just, like, astonishing that today that leader at the time is not willing to own up to that egregious clear
4: mistake. But Rebecca, you know, like, the editor there, like, defending the coverage to this day, it's sort of the same thing as the cops still, like, saying, oh, well, you know, the price paying a cop, being a cop was too much. We did, we did the best we do. We, we did, did the we best had. we could. He said it was a black guy. What are we going to do? Go well, after white people? I mean, okay, it was a lie, and they everybody went off what they thought was the truth, but... It was a lie that was way too easily believed. Not
3: everybody. No, not everybody. everybody. The first two detectives thought it
4: was Chuck Stewart. No, but it was just its shockingly too easy to just say it was a black guy and that's all you need to know. Right. And everything else went on. Now, today, there are some of us where they say, oh, it was a random black guy where that's like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That's the best lie you could come up with. Yeah. But there are still people like, yes, must have been a random black guy in a tracksuit. That's all I need
1: to know. And I think what makes that even more maddening is that the the, the Globe goes out and reinvestigates and, you know, they, they dig up more stuff and they find out that 33 people knew that Chuck was responsible before the brother went to the police. And of that, 11 of them knew the truth by her funeral. That was like two months before Willie Bennett is accused and, you know, it's the day after... Chuck's brother, like, goes with his girlfriend off somewhere and tells her. And then it's like a game of telephone, and she tells somebody else. And then that leads to the tip that goes to the fucker there who doesn't follow up on it. Yeah, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's too busy looking
4: for Hunter's laptop.
1: (laughs) 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 You people! You people don't do anything! You people! I was like, oh, my God. When anyone ever says, you people, that's just very triggering. How dare you point out my
4: incompetency?
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it's just absolutely astounding when you see like, yes, there are new revelations, but wait a minute. There was information at the time that was ignored. And it wasn't like one person who had this like secret. They were going to take to the grave. There was 33 people who knew. See, that didn't surprise (laughs) me at all.
3: That didn't surprise me at all because Kevin and I wrote a book about a guy who killed somebody in high school and dozens of people knew for twenty decades. years. Twenty years. And did not say anything.
1: <laughs> but in this case, people actually made the report. Remember that yeah, like, they're yeah. like, I'm gonna yeah, try they to. They like, reported it. People so they actually it. reported it to yeah. the police. <laughs> what makes me
3: crazy is that the first two detectives suspected him and were pulled off the case.
5: I think if you go through American history and look for examples of white people, willing to let black people take the fall for crimes that they know a white person did. Mm -hmm. You're probably going to spend a lot of time like (laughs) finding cases. I mean, I think that's just sort of a a
4: long Wikipedia
5: page. It's a a theme in our history, right? Absolutely. And and just because it's Boston and it's more recent than a lot of the stuff that we think about, it's just a theme in our history. It's part of white supremacy
3: we 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 talked a lot about um the story about race when we talked about the documentary. And we are talking a little bit more about the new reporting because there is mm-hmm. new reporting here. And one thing that I want to ask you about Kevin is the accomplice theory. right. Um, so there is now this theory that I've never heard before that there was someone in the back seat of the car, that uh, Chuck Stewart potentially could not have shot himself in the back. And that somebody shot him in the back from the back seat of the car, and that it was most likely, if anyone, his brother, Matt, mm-hmm. who did not receive a bag from one car to the other, mm-hmm. but was in fact the shooter, maybe in the back seat of the car. Uh, shot Carol and then shot his brother in the back. And then, you know, yeah. what do you think of that idea? I mean, we heard various, we heard doctors say it was not possible. Then we heard another doctor say, I don't know if we heard doctors say it was maybe possible. I don't know. But it was like, it seemed seemed like pretty convincing. That is certainly potentially true. A couple of witnesses said they saw someone in the backseat and they were never listened to.
4: Yeah. I mean, there are some problems with that theory. If you're going to say it was Matt, just that like, why would Matt, come forward while his brother was still in legal jeopardy without incriminating himself. If his better angels came to him, why not make a full confession? Doesn't mean that he's he wasn't lying or whatever, but I certainly didn't think, well, I, I guess, so. I mean, we know it was true. We know that Charles Stewart gave the gun and, and the purse and all that stuff to somebody and we know it was Matt and he said right where you would find the gun and they found it there. But yeah, it just didn't. It just never, like when we started thinking about it, it just who pulled the trigger on him. And, you know, it wasn't just being all oh, the shoulder wound. And it it certainly seems like if you were going to uh, give yourself a self inflicted, non fatal wound, that you would probably put it someplace that it's even, you know, maybe that, not the gut. Maybe not yeah. the gut. Maybe not something that you wound up in the hospital for two weeks or whatever, however long it was. um, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's an interesting
3: point, though, that Matt would confess to, to that part of it. Because then how does he know that yeah. Chuck isn't going to be like, no, he pulled
4: the trigger. He did, I mean, in a way, <laughs> he did have an accomplice yeah. and it was Matt. But to the extent that Matt and were a fourth person or the third person got involved. I don't know. Somebody had to pull the trigger. I guess the official story will be that it's that it was Chuck because you just can't definitively prove something else. Although I just think. That,
3: but the police were very happy to put the case to bed. Oh, yeah. Toby, what do you think?
5: Uh well, I could see him I could see Matt feeling pressured by the fact that his family says that they're going to go to the cops and you know this is yeah. his chance to get out in front of it if he wants to. I don't think matt it doesn't seem like a guy who's thinking all these things through super well so i yeah, I thought that the whole third person thing was was kind of interesting, and also just because they don't address it at all in the h b o thing. Not, not, not that I have any need to defend that guy Dunn, who just it seems like he's horrible, but they do kind of run that quote, as you said earlier, Rebecca, without the context of there being people who actually believe that there was a third person in the car. It just sounds right. like him being like stubborn and being like, oh, I still think it was a black guy.
3: Yeah. Uh, he says, he says, we never had a chance too. to say Willie Bennett didn't do it. Yeah, We don't know for sure who shot Carol Stewart. That's what he says. And in the context of not knowing that there may have been another person, it just sounds like he's saying Chuck Stewart wasn't involved, which is a bananas thing to say. Yeah. (laughs) Without that other piece of information.
4: Or just the one thing where he's he's clinging to the idea that, no, maybe it really was Willie Bennett.
3: Yeah. Also, by the Ah, way, another piece of information comes out about Bill Dunn in the podcast was that he was accused of sexually assaulting a teenager while being a cop. Yeah. Was cleared in an investigation, but I don't think it's insignificant that there were complaints against him when he was a cop. We know that a lot of complaints against cops are investigated and cops are cleared, but complaints are complaints.
4: I'm glad how he says that he forbids his grandchildren from going into the city because apparently he's just stepping right over the parents. And I'm the one who's in charge here. You ain't going to that city. I don't like him more. Don't go to Back Bay.
3: Yeah. Don't go to Mattapan. <laughs> there's some pretty Boston Don't quotes. Don't go to the Quabbin Reservoir. Don't yeah. go to Medford. Let me just say, there's some pretty Boston quotes from Bill Dunn in this, ep- in this podcast, including an in episode two, when I almost did a spit take at something oh. he said, which was straight out of Gone Baby Gone. He says something, and I almost like called you on the phone, Kevin, to be like, fast forward to the so-and-so mark and
4: you episode to two. I almost,
3: I, I... Yeah, let's include it. I'll just All go right. ahead and beep out the
5: word. Are you kidding me? People got to be fucking retarded to believe that. That don't happen in Russia. They said there was a siege on Mission Hill, cops riding through with horses. If there was horses up there, they were stepping on needles, so they wouldn't have last long.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the US economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
5: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. All
3: right, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out the Murder in Boston podcast from the Boston Globe? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this podcast? Uh,
1: Yeah, I'm going thumbs up on this. The documentary sort of stood on its own. Like I said, it it covered it well. It looked at it from a different angle. But, you know, when you think of the Boston Globe, like think of that movie Spotlight. We know that the Boston Globe has a reputation for investigative reporting. They have really tremendous sourcing throughout their newsroom with people that have been there for a long time. We hear our host, Adrian Walker, has been there. I can't remember, was it like 36 years, 35 years? Long time. Long time. So people with institutional knowledge of the city, the people, and I think what was good about this one, we heard more about all of the people that were involved. Like we hear about Willie Bennett, who, by the way, robbed a paraplegic and took his legs. That was a little detail that stood (laughs) out to me. But we also hear about their new investigation of this case. And I won't give any spoilers, but I'm going to say, I think a lot of really interesting information comes out in the Globe's new investigation looking at this case it, and still looking at it through the lens of race and how race played a role and continues to play a role in policing and how cases are investigated. You know, I, I just think this was really well done. It was super interesting, and it is a thumbs up for me.
3: Toya Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the Murder in Boston podcast?
5: Yeah, I'm a big thumbs up for this. Um, I can't remember if I was a thumb sideways or a—
3: You were a thumb sideways.
5: I kind of listed, I think, in the uh, in our thumbs up, thumbs down section, some of the stuff that I thought was missing, which was that the, the history was kind of a Cliff Notes version. You don't really learn anything about uh, Chuck and Carol Stewart, a few other things. Uh, and this basically does all those things well, like all the things that I was sort of complaining about, they're not being enough of here. They go really far into it. So they answered all my questions. And then they also, towards the end, they have this sort of new information that changes the way you look at things, maybe. So anyway, yeah, I think, I think it's excellent. Um, and I, I give it a big thumbs up.
3: Kevin Flynn, thumbs up or thumbs down for the Murder in Boston podcast.
4: I'm a big thumbs up for this. I was having a discussion with somebody on New Year's Eve because we have a friend whose uh, her husband is from the area and also has a, a, a brother mock. Right at some point, he's talking about brother <laughs> Mac, we can ask him brother Mac. Is that awesome? Yeah, he also has a and you know I would say my brother Mac. So I wanted to tell this to this person, and I said, I'm listening to this podcast, and she said, I've already binged it. It was fantastic. So then we ended up instead of just talking about brother Mac, we talked about the podcast. It's it's fantastic. The team is not 100% podcasters, but they're 100% elite journalists. It's well-researched, well-reasoned. The quality really outshines that of the documentary. The documentary, I thought, was a thumbs up. It was a good documentary, but man... Don't listen to this podcast and then go watch the documentary if you want to do both, because it's going to really make it seem very weak tea. This was great. It was insightful. I enjoyed the people that they brought us to Learned something new. They advanced the news story here on this. They didn't sell any ads as far as I can tell. This was all great public service journalism. So this is the best podcast of the year. <laughs> <laughs> I think will probably be saying that just about every week. So for me, it's a big thumbs up.
3: Yeah, I don't think you need to watch the documentary. This podcast completely stands on its own. It's not a companion podcast. As we said, it's a parallel project. I started watching the Line documentary. I didn't care for it. I loved the Line podcast by Dan Taberski. This is along those lines. This podcast completely stands on its own. It is... Six or seven times better than the documentary in terms of the journalism, in terms of the sourcing, in terms of how much further it takes the story. And the journalism angle itself is fantastic. The fact that it actually gathers news is fantastic. And, you know, they're missing some sources here, but they explain why they're missing the sources and they do really well without the sources that they can't get. And um, it's so funny, Adrian's colleague says to him, what, you're a fucking podcaster now? (laughs) Adrian, hate to break it to you, you're a fucking podcaster now. You made a great podcast, and I agree with Kevin. It's the best podcast of the year so far. So yeah, huge thumbs up for me for the Murder in Boston podcast. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the Crime Crime of of the the Week. It was no ordinary pothole off North Beacon Street in Grand Haven, Michigan. The crater was so big, someone came along and put a reclining chair in it. Photos of the lazy boy in the hole soon went viral as residents started traveling to get their pictures taken in it. After the recliner disappeared, people started bringing more furniture to replace it. The pothole soon had a blue armchair, a hi-fi stereo, and its own Christmas tree. The city says they weren't the ones who removed the famous recliner, which was later spotted on Facebook Marketplace for $1,000. Good deal. Officials say the pothole may be a viral sensation, but it's on a private road and isn't responsible for maintaining the asphalt. They say they'll reach out to the property owners to discuss options for fixing the road. Panel, the recliner is gone. The armchair might vanish too. What should they do next to redecorate this giant pothole? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Um,
1: I think they should hang some Slim Jims and string cheese, <laughs> and that that would be a nice touch. What do you think, Toby Ball, they should do to redecorate this giant
3: pothole?
5: Beer fridge. <laughs> yeah.
3: What do you think, Kevin?
5: They should put a little uh, dock
4: out there mm. so young kid in blue overalls can put his bamboo fishing pole out there and eat his bologna sandwich and spell the name out.
3: Huh. I know a broken Samsung convection range that might look great. Oh, Yeah in that oh, pothole. Oh, that's a good one, Rebecca. Just saying. Uh, that's going to do it for us. But Lara Bricker, if folks want to reach out to you to
1: commiserate over your appliance issues. How can they find you on social media? You can find me at Lara Bricker on Twitter. And if you have a brand of induction stove that you really like, you can tweet it to me because I would like recommendations. Toya Ball, how about you? How can you be found online?
5: At Tobyballnh.
1: Kevin Flynn. What about you?
5: I'm at Kevin P Flynn. And if
3: you want to follow me everywhere, you can find me at Reb Lavoie, especially Twitter and Instagram. You can also follow the show at Crime Writers On. But I mostly encourage you to join our incredible community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Just go to our Facebook page, join the group. There's a link there. Also, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube. Get episodes early and ad free at Patreon.com/slash Partners in Crime Media. You'll also get the Crime Writers On After. Show Married with Podcast, Lara Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcasts. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the wonderful Livy Burdette. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, The Closet, in our New Hampshire basement where I also publish excerpts from Kevin's lousy report cards. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later.
1: I knew something bad had happened. And it had. They were dead. They were dead.
5: And that's not great.